Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Crossing Church. We're grateful to have you here this morning. We are at our seventh and our final installment today of our series, Kingdom Come. Um, Last weekend, I shared that we were going to take a few questions, um, that we wanted you to submit questions, and then we'd like to take uh, uh, perhaps one or two of them in our service to try to address those. And we're going to do one this morning. It's actually a simple question, but it's one that warrants a biblical response uh, and one that, that requires some more explanation, albeit brief. And so here's the question we received that we want to introduce this morning's topic with. In, in Matthew chapter 4, and this is, we talked about this last weekend, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Why was it Satan's to give? So that's a great question. So let me give you some very basic systematic theology. Um, and, and again, time doesn't allow us to go into this in depth, but I think it's important you understand this. God creates... Satan corrupts. So in everything in life, God creates, Satan distorts and perverts. And that's true of everything in our world, both seen and unseen. Everything was set in motion by God. So God, the creator of all things, created angelic beings. The highest angelic being was Lucifer, or as we know today as Satan. Lucifer, the Bible says, wanted God's position, and he actually rebelled because God created the angels just like he created us, with free will and free choice. God did not create angels having to love him. God created angels with an opportunity to deny him and reject him, and Lucifer actually vies for the position of God. He rebels against God's leadership, and the Bible says he is cast from heaven taking with him a third of other angels that he had a part of this rebellion. And the Bible says they are hurled here to earth, to a place at that time that was formless and void and without definition. God then creates mankind. He creates everything and begins shaping this earth with, with definition. He actually starts to bring about everything we see here on the earth. And the final thing that he creates is man and woman. And they bear a striking resemblance to God. The Bible says that that we were made in the image of God just a little bit lower than the angels. And so Satan takes an opportunity with man and woman in a perfect garden, a place where there was a tree that the Bible says God said you can eat of anything, you can enjoy all that I provide, but that tree... Because you have free will, I don't want you to eat of that tree. And Satan deceives mankind, and mankind receives of the forbidden tree, and the Bible says is cast out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden, and from that moment forward, sin has tainted everything on the earth. There is no child that is born onto this earth today who is not born in sin. And there is no kingdom 
There is no governance. There is no leadership that is not led by mankind, which means it has sin that taints it. So the kingdoms of this earth and this world are actually influenced largely by what the Bible tells us is Satan himself. 1 John chapter 5, listen to what the Bible says. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one, Jesus, who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God. Now notice this, and that the whole world is under the control or the influence of the evil one. Listen to what Satan is called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of God's new, good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. But God sends his son Jesus. And Jesus comes to a broken, a fallen, a sin-tainted world, and he comes for the purpose of restoring the world and, and establishing a kingdom on this earth that is not confined by geographical boundaries or borders. It is not contained by political parties. It is a kingdom that is led by a king, and it is actually stewarded by citizens who are part of a spiritual embassy called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to be a part, but something remarkable happened at our salvation. And here's what the Bible teaches us in Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He, Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. And our salvation... We are not just forgiven, we are freed. We are freed and delivered and led out of a kingdom of darkness and we now become part of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And we in that moment and from that day forward become part of redeeming back to God the things Satan has destroyed. The things that Satan has perverted our job is to work and cooperate with God's Spirit in trying to bring order and God's authority back to this broken earth. From this day forward, we will be part of that redemption story, you and I, where we're redeeming back for God the things that Satan has destroyed until one day Jesus will come again. And he'll set up a kingdom on this earth. And here's what Revelation says. It says, the kingdom of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and forever. There will come a day when Jesus Christ will vanquish every enemy, and he will set up a kingdom that you and I get to be part of. We will rule and we will reign with him forever and forever in ages that have not yet been born. It's a remarkable redemption story that God says we get to be part of. So when Satan said to Jesus, look at all these kingdoms. I give them to you if you bow to me. What he was saying was, these are kingdoms that I have influenced. 
and I will continue to influence. And the only way that those kingdoms can ever be changed is to get people who are part of the redemptive narrative into those places of leadership. And God then can begin to influence in a godly way these kingdoms of this world. But until that day, these kingdoms will remain under the control and the influence of the enemy of this world, the God of this age, the Bible says. So that's an important part of what I want to talk about this morning. As we close our series, Kingdom Come. This morning, what I want to talk about and I want to focus on is the fruit of God's kingdom. The fruit of God's kingdom. And and I want to focus this morning primarily on one verse of Scripture, and then we from that verse will zoom out. And we'll talk about what this verse is teaching us. Romans Chapter 14, verse number 17. Here's the final installment of Kingdom Come. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. To understand this particular verse, we have to look at it in its wider context. And in its wider context, Paul the Apostle is writing to Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Remarkably, these particular Christians, though they all had come to faith in Christ, had their own ideas when it came to dietary preferences. In fact, throughout the Roman Empire, in these Christian communities, there were factions that were beginning to develop and emerge based on preferences and ideologies about what you could eat and what you could drink. There were some who were in the church saying, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't eat that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't drink that. And there are others that saying, no, no, you don't understand. When we came to faith in Christ, we are now allowed to do this allowed to eat this, allowed to drink this because we have been forgiven and it says if we receive it with thanksgiving, everything's okay. And Paul is writing here to bring wisdom to the issue. And what Paul is saying is this. I want to speak to the herbivores that are looking down on the carnivores. There was the paleo sect and the vegetarian sect and the vegan sect These were all beginning to emerge in the church, and they're all beginning to think we are better than them because we don't eat that or because we can eat that. And Paul writes, and what he does is he pulls out the kingdom card. Interestingly, it's the only time in the book of Romans that Paul uses the word kingdom. 16 chapters, only one time. He talks a lot about it in the New Testament, but it's the only time the word appears in this book of Romans. And Paul says, listen, I get what's going on. And I get you're allowing all of these things to begin to divide you. These are mundane things. These are not kingdom issues. And he said, I'm going to pull out the kingdom card. And I want to remind you that the kingdom of God is not about whether you eat or drink. It is not about which particular dietary preference you have. The kingdom of God is about three fruits. Righteousness, peace, and joy. These are dead giveaways. 
When, when God's kingdom is on full display, there's no mistaking it. Because there are three evidences that you will always see if it's God's kingdom. If it's of God and if it's from God, it will always bear these evidences. Righteousness, peace, and joy. And these are all relational terms. So the first fruit of God's kingdom is righteousness. This is a word that is terribly misunderstood among most people, including many Christians. When most people hear the word righteousness, they immediately think behavior modification. If I change my conduct, I can become righteous. Listen, that is not what Paul the Apostle had in mind when he said, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. In fact, it isn't even close to what Paul the Apostle had in mind. To understand what Paul had in mind, we just need to go to other scriptures and look at them because they teach us very clearly what righteousness is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who never sinned, takes on the nature of sin. And he does it in exchange so that we can take on the nature of God, which we could never earn, we could never become righteous enough for. He says, listen, I'm going to do something that you can't do. This word righteous is both a relational term and it's also a legal term. So it's actually derived from the discipline of law. And the word righteous literally means right positioning. So when, when a person comes to faith in Christ, a person is actually placed into right relationship and right standing with God. It's unbelievable. And though outside of God's family, you now are actually repositioned inside and within God's family. You receive a new identity. You get all the rights and the privileges that come with this new identity. And the Bible says you are positioned right with God. That is what the Bible here is talking about. So yesterday at Windsor Castle, Meghan Markle stood at an altar with Prince Harry, an American actress. And when she stood at that altar with Prince Harry at the Windsor Castle, and she said, I take him to be my lawfully wedded husband, something immediately happened in that moment. She became royalty. She became a princess. She doesn't have to do anything more than what she did to be a princess. Nobody can strip the title from her. It is given to her by way of right positioning that came through relationship with somebody 
That is royalty. Royalty runs in the bloodline. When we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, there is royalty that is transferred into our blood. And we now become part of this kingdom of God. We become part of God's righteousness. It happens, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, initiated by him. The Bible says he, Jesus, came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. God wanted his creation to become his children. And so he sends his son to broker a deal. He comes to his own people, and the Bible says they reject the offer. They reject the deal. They're not interested in what Jesus is coming to offer them. So what does he do? He widens the gate. And he says to every single person who actually believes on my name, they move from being my creation to being my child. Listen, friends, Jesus did not die to improve us. Jesus died to reclaim us and regain us as his children. He wanted to come so that he could reclaim what was rightfully his from the beginning. And the Bible teaches that not only in that moment are we part of God's family, but the Bible says we actually belong to God. Listen, you always mattered to God, but now you belong to God. You belong to his family. And the Bible says that it, it's even better than that. It's not just that you belong, but you're given rights as God's children. Think about this. That is another legal word. It literally means to receive the entitlements and the endowments that are yours by birth. It's, it's, it's another word we could use there is birthright. And what the Bible says Jesus did for us is he didn't just say you belong, you are God's child. But listen, all of the entitlements and all the endowments that are mine to give, I give to you. Other places the Bible says we are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We become co-partakers of this wonderful inheritance that is ours through his blood. So please do not misunderstand righteousness. Righteousness is first and foremost something I am. You do not become righteous by what you do or what you have done. We become righteous by what Jesus did and what Jesus has done. Only. And we've got to understand that we are the righteousness of God. And so the Bible goes on to tell us that those that are part of his kingdom in Matthew's gospel will do something. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and notice it, and live righteously. What does it mean? It means start living based on who you are 
You are the righteousness of God. So stop thinking of yourself as unrighteous. That's not what God calls you. God calls you his righteousness because of Jesus Christ who paid for you so that you could have this unbelievable relationship, so that you could have these unbelievable opportunities. It all came because of him. And we now actually begin to live out the righteousness of God because it's who we are. So stop thinking and acting like unrighteousness when your righteousness, let it flow through you. The kingdom of God is first of all evidenced by the fruit of righteousness. Secondly, the kingdom of God is evidenced by the fruit of peace. Listen, make no mistake about it. When the kingdom of God is on full display, peace will prevail. Peace will be the trademark. Again, this is a relational term. Paul here is actually just simply repeating something that Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel. Chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now there's two things I, I urge you not to mistake this morning. Do not mistake peacemaking with peacekeeping. They are not one and the same. Peacemaking is all about relationship and reconciliation. Peacekeeping is all about negotiation and diplomacy. In fact, in peacekeeping, it's all about trying to, what, minimize conflict so that somehow you can say, we brokered a peace deal. But here's the reality. In life, we've learned that to get to peace, sometimes there is conflict. So that's the other thing I don't want you to mistake. Do not think of peace as the absence of conflict. It isn't. Peacekeepers are all about tolerating false peace. And the reason they'll tolerate false peace is because they don't want to lean into the conflict. Peacemakers, on the other hand, will actually lean into conflict to disrupt false peace. Because those who are followers of Jesus will do exactly what Jesus did. And just read the Gospels. Jesus did not avoid conflict. He did not. Jesus leaned into it. There was a steady stream of conflict that went with Christ. He had conflict with the religious leaders. He had conflict with the crowds. He even had conflict with his own disciples, even his own family. He actually dealt with the conflict that came. Why? Because Jesus was all about making peace, not keeping false peace. And we that are followers of Jesus will use the wisdom that comes from heaven, the same wisdom that Jesus used. James actually tells us this, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. So wisdom must first be marked with purity before it can bring peace. It means we've got to be truthful about current reality. It means we've got to be willing to disrupt false peace at times. 
to get to God's peace. And I want you to know this morning, the greater degree of disrupting false peace, the greater measure of true peace you can find. The greater degree that we will lean into false peace, the greater degree that we will get God's peace. And it will bring what God intended into relationships. The righteousness of God is the first fruit. Peace will always be the second fruit of God's kingdom. And the third fruit that Paul the Apostle talked about here is he said the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy. Now the Bible teaches some interesting things about joy. The, the Bible teaches that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I want you to think about that for a moment. The joy of the Lord is our strength. This may surprise you, but Satan primary objective and aim is not to attack your strength. It is not to go after your health. It's not to destroy your wealth. It's not to get your marriage or your kids. His primary aim is to rob you of joy. And he does it by attacking your health and sometimes attacking your finances, your wealth, and your marriage, and your family, and your kids. Why? Because, the, because Satan knows that if he can rob us of joy, he robs us of strength. He robs us of the very power that God wants to give us. The, the, joy is not some manufactured happiness. That's, that's all circumstantial. There are times that we're not happy by, about the circumstances of life. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a joy that comes directly from God that fills our hearts with the knowledge that we understand who we are and that nothing in this world can take away from us what God has given us. Nothing can be robbed of us of eternal value if we keep our eyes on God. And so circumstances may come and go. They may be fleeting. Happiness may ebb and flow with the circumstance of life. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what keeps us focused on God. And listen, in relationships, one of the evidences you're going to see is that people who are kingdom people are going to be filled with joy in what they do for God's kingdom. Their hearts will be filled with joy for serving and joy for praying and joy for giving and joy for going because they understand that they are part of God's kingdom, something so much bigger than they could have ever, ever earned on their own. And I don't want you to miss the end of what Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness, joy, peace and joy. Now notice this, in the Holy Spirit. I cannot produce and manufacture righteousness, peace, and joy, but God can. God can. And listen, if you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has you, there will be unmistakable evidence of God's kingdom that will flow through your life. People will see it. 
people will taste and see that the Lord is good as they experience you. You don't have to try to produce this. Serving in God's kingdom is not about us trying to do something in our own power. It's just simply following him, letting him lead us. This morning as we close, I'm going to add one final piece of fruit into the mix about God's kingdom. Oh, it's not in this verse, but it's all through the New Testament. In fact, Jesus was the one who made sure we understood about this particular piece of fruit. That he says, this one above all will actually give away my kingdom. On the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, the Bible says that Jesus led them in the Passover meal. But here's what he says in John chapter 13, verse number 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. A new command I give you. Love one another. Friends, love is the single greatest virtue in God's kingdom. In fact, every other virtue flows and stems from this one. But the question is this morning, what were the disciples hearing Jesus say? To be honest with you, this was not new in their understanding. Loving one another was a priority for those who were in, God, who were in the Jewish faith. So here's how they're hearing it. Here's how they're hearing it. Love one another. Love those who are culturally like me. Love one another. Love those who share my ethnicity. Love one another. Love those who are part of my faith family. Love one another. Love those who look like me, act like me, are educated like me, and share my ethos. That's how they understood it. But here's the deal. We don't get to define what that word love means. If I were to ask you today, I'd get dozens of different responses about the word love. Here's the deal. We don't define it. We don't get to arbitrarily just attach our value to that word. Hollywood does not define this for us. Nashville does not tell us what this is. Las Vegas does not have the right to put a definition to that word. The only one that has the authority to tell us what that means is the one who lived it. Jesus takes a word here that in the first century Greek culture was non-existent. It was a word that existed, but they never used it. And the reason they never used it is because humans could not live this kind of love. In Greek mythology, it was applied to deities. Jesus takes that kind of love 
And he says, here's what's going to make this different than anything you've ever seen. This is what makes this the new command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's new. That's different than what they understood. That changes everything. Because the question is, how did he love us? Wow. He's the one who initiated. He's the one who came and took our sin. He's the one who became the embodiment of broken humanity, confined divine power in human flesh. He's the one. He's the one who was misunderstood more than any person who ever lived. He's the one who his own family called mad. He's the one who's betrayed by a kiss. He's the one that everybody who he poured his life into for three years walked away from him. Everyone. He's the one. He's the one that is falsely accused, spit upon, mocked, beaten to within an inch of his life. He's the one. He's the one who carries this cross to a place where he's nailed brutally to this cross. And he says, as I have loved you, I'm about to show you. I'm going to pick up the bread. I'm going to pick up the cup. I'm going to show you how you must love one another. This will be the final fruit. This will be the final command. He's not going to rescind this one. It's not going to change. This will be our final edict of his kingdom until it ushers us into the presence of love forever. Fullness of love like we've never experienced. Here's what Jesus says in Luke's gospel, chapter 6. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. That's different. What they understood was do to others as they do to you. If they treat you right, treat them right. If they're kind to you, be kind to them. Right? But if, but if somebody's your enemy, hey, you're not forced to love them. Jesus says, no, no. No, no. Listen to what he goes on and says, verse 32 and 33. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That's not my kingdom. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? That's not the way it looks in my kingdom. The way it looks in my kingdom is you'll love those who don't love you. You'll be kind to those who don't deserve it. You'll give your life up if I ask you to for even a person that considers you their enemy. That's the new command. As I have loved you, as I have loved you, love one another. May that be the evidence of Grace Crossing Church. May may that be the distinctive that when people say, tell me about Grace Crossing Church, may that be the thing that sets us apart May that be the thing that people recognize, not the building 
or the band or our ministries. May it be our love. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.